Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 152, Death of a Conquering Hero. So everyone, we've surely heard enough of Henry V now and all his shenanigans, his comings and goings. Time to polish the guy off and put him to bed. This week, we're going to cover a bit then about all the domestics while Henry's been off glorying, the rule of Normandy, Henry's last visit back to Blighty and his death in France. No messing. Well, except I'm going to do a bit of fundraising. It seems like a decently long time since I've tried to touch you all for a few quid in the style of McTeagle. And the History of England friend Robertson has again donated. So, we've got two prizes, not just one. We've got an Edward I penny and a rather nice bronze mount. So it's the same drill as last time. Everyone who makes a donation between the 7th of June and 7th of July gets put into a draw, and there'll be two winners. I'll tell you more later. Oh, and also we have Kevin back this week at the end of this podcast. So, apart from those two bits of messing then, on to the history. You might ask what the English thought about all this dual kingdom stuff and all this war stuff. You might remember that as often as not English king's subjects didn't necessarily share their boss's enthusiasm for all that conquest, or at least they didn't appreciate the bills that came with it. And they would have had plenty of grounds for complaint in this case. So in the three years of 1415 to 1417, five full subsidies were paid. Over his nine years of reign, there were 11 subsidies. And all of this was against a background of disruption of trade, shrinking crown revenues and a shortage of bullion. At the end of his reign, the crown had indeed run up a debt of at least 55,000 quid and probably more. Each year, the crown revenues at 53,000 quid were almost completely eaten up by normal revenues before the king and his wardrobe and household 
were even considered. So was this the perfect breeding ground for discontent of the good English burgher and the gentleman of the gentle shire? Or was the nation all carried away with the excitement and glory of it all? Well, without wanting to sound like a sucker, the answer is that it's Henry's talents and vision that stops the whole thing falling to pieces. There's no doubt that there was some uneasiness. So in 1420, for example, Parliament was very clear that there would be no further subsidies because they viewed the Treaty of Troyes as the end of the war. And they asked Henry for confirmation that the English nation would be kept separate and ruled according to its own laws and customs and not become some sort of little France. But really, that is pretty much it. And if you compare this to even the glorious Edward III, it's a pretty good story. Henry V was forced to make no concessions in Parliament, like Edward had. There was no debt mountain of £200,000 that Edward had run up in ten years of campaigning. So how did Henry achieve this? And the strongest argument, to my mind, against the one that says that Henry was a maniac, is that he never lost sight of the fact that he needed to take his people with him, and therefore that he needed to know how far to push them and when to lay off. And he needed to make sure that all the resources of his little island were focused on the massive ambition that he'd set himself. The church was to be the cornerstone in this. In a time of very limited communication, the church was a powerful, powerful tool. For Henry, the war with France was a national effort, with every subject directed towards fulfilling the destiny of the English people. To reach and communicate this message, there was no tool more powerful than the church, from bishop in his palace to the poorest parish priest. For example, within their diocese, bishops were ordered to pray for, quote, Our victorious King of England, Henry V, faithful soldier of Christ and strongest striver after peace. Now was the time, in Henry's view, for the English to assume the leadership of Christendom and do God's work. Victories were celebrated by a convulsion of prayer and religious procession. With the unity on his mind, Henry pursued the Lollards to rub out any dissension. He also pursued a determinedly nationalistic line with the Pope. That guy in the hat might be Vicar of Christ and all that, but running the English church was Henry's hood, and the Pope could just keep out of it. In his search for unity, Henry focused without Ruth on delivering on his job description, that really quite simple thing laid down by the time of Edgar's coronation in the 10th century. So, look after the church, maintain law and order, rule with justice and mercy. Ferdinorfer. And from the start, Henry had cracked down on lawlessness, even when perpetrated by friends of the family, such as Arundel on the Welsh marches. And it can't have hurt that Henry encouraged the less fastidious of his subjects to up sticks and head for a life of violence and mayhem in the green fields of France, as opposed to a life of violence and mayhem in the green fields of England. Now, when I was in halls of residence in St Andrews all those years ago, there was a very nice cleaner who used to stop and chat for a while. Very nice she was, but also a little doer, and a good traditional inhabitant of East Nuke and more than once she'd discuss with me about how money is the root of all evil. And who knows, she may be right, and the need for money may well have led Henry away from the paths of righteousness on occasion, in particular with regards to his stepmother. So we've just said that despite all this war, Henry ran up debts far more manageable 
than Edward III, that he kept a cap on the demands to Parliament for more taxation, and that in this lay one of the reasons for the relative national unity. All of which is true, but do not for a moment think this was easy. Far from it, gentle listener, far from it. Henry scrimped, Henry saved. His household was notoriously frugal. He cajoled and begged his great men for money. Gord love you, spurs a few coppers, governor, echoed through the halls of Westminster. If his great men gave him any excuse, he hammered them. So consider the story of Henry Beaufort, uncle to the king, bishop of the richest diocese in Europe, Winchester, erstwhile Chancellor of England under Henry, both father and son, an ambitious man. And yet, in 1417, he went on pilgrimage. Admirably spiritual, you might think. Well, you might say that and you might not, because spookily, just spookily, the Conference of Constance happened to be going on at the same time. And Henry wanted a Pope sympathetic to the King's cause, so with equal levels of spook, Beaufort's pilgrimage took him straight through the town of Constance. The English delegation suddenly changed their rather negative tune, and as a result, a Colonna was elected Pope as Martin V. And Marty was terribly grateful to Henry for his intervention, and appointed Henry Beaufort as a legate, and his see of Winchester to be no longer subject to the authority of Canterbury, and Beaufort proceeded to Jerusalem, a very happy man. When he finally returned and met Henry at Rouen in 1419, the smirk was wiped off his legatine face. Henry was livid, and proceeded to wipe the floor with him. As far as he was concerned, this was a plot between Pope and Beaufort to increase the power of the Pope over the English church. Beaufort was slung out of any kind of office and sent to cool his heels in the provinces. But then, in 1421, Henry was a bit strapped for cash, so Beaufort was graciously allowed to buy himself back into the king's favour by loaning the crown a stonking £17,000. Given that he still had about £9,000 outstanding from a previous loan, Beaufort was a lender of quite extraordinary extent to the Crown, and I can only imagine how hard and what parts of the ecclesiastical anatomy had been squeezed by the royal hand. The point of this story is that Henry did everything to gain money from anywhere he could. But the worst example is the way he treated his stepmother. Joan of Navarre was in some ways an odd choice of queen for Henry IV, and there has to have been something of mutual attraction in some way. Because this wasn't about the need for children, Henry had a bunch of them. Joan already had seven. Although very well connected, Joan brought no great diplomatic advantages. In fact, there was a lot of opposition in the land of her sons, Brittany, to the deal. And she was forced to give up guardianship of the heir, her son. But Henry forked out. He forked out 10,000 marks for her dowry, which was breathtaking, toe-curling, buttock-clenchingly higher figure. Her coronation was unusually extravagant, and there are indications that she was accorded the status of queen in her own right, rather than just queen consort. Her descent from kings was maybe one of the reasons. For a usurper, Joan added legitimacy. Joan was determined to maintain her independence, managing her own money, keeping firm control over the English dowry. She maintained close links with the Breton court and her children, giving them financial support in their struggles with Burgundy and France. And she surrounded herself by a cloud of Bretons in her household. 
She looked out for any Bretons, once, for example, interceding on behalf of a group of Breton sailors shipwrecked on the coast and making sure they were released without ransom. She was therefore suitably unpopular, though not with Henry IV, since they seemed to have a pretty close relationship and spent plenty of time together. And seemingly, Joan did establish good relationships with her stepchildren, including Henry V. They apparently in particular shared a love of music and of the harp. When Henry left for the Agincourt campaign in 1415, Joan was given some royal castles and there was an official leave-taking ceremony. The victory at Agincourt must have been slightly complicated for her. Her son Arthur was fighting on the other side, though he survived as a prisoner, and her son-in-law, the Duke of Alençon, was killed. But she was at the ceremony celebrations with her stepson and everything was apparently fine. But money, ladies and gentlemen, is the root of all evil. Henry needed money, he needed money badly, and there was 10,000 marks sitting in his stepmother's counting-house, just gathering dust. In September 1419, a circular came out from the Archbishop of Canterbury telling English priests to pray for the king, because he was in danger from the superstitious deeds of necromancers. And then, a couple of days later, Joan was suddenly arrested by order of the Royal Council, accused of seeking, by sorcery and necromancy, to have destroyed the king. Joan's situation shows the real vulnerability of even the most powerful of women in the Middle Ages. There was nothing she could do except go quietly into captivity. It's really very difficult to see another reason why Henry visited this on his stepmother other than a money grab. It's just about possible he really believed the necromancy thing but it's a serious long shot. Having said that, you may be thinking of poor Joan groaning in a dark, dank and cold dungeon, hanging from irons fixed to the walls. If so, forget that thought. Her captivity was pretty luxurious with fine clothes, freedom to ride, servants, visitors. Lord Camoys, commander of one of the battles at Agincourt, lived with her for ten months. Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester and our Henry Beaufort visited and were entertained by Joan's minstrel, Nicholas. So not quite as bad as you might think. But Henry gained about 8,000 marks from this unattractive bit of chicanery. He obviously regretted it. On his deathbed, he would order her dower arrears paid and order that she was released. So, back to the narrative. We'd left Henry celebrating his regency in Paris in 1420. Once the celebrations were done, he and Catherine went to his new ducal palace at Rouen and for a few weeks the newlyweds held court. Henry's policy was to assimilate Normandy and his approach was very carefully to behave like a Duke of Normandy when he was there, not like a King of England or even a King of France. So when he assembled the three estates, nobles, church, towns, it was the ducal robes that he wore. There was an exchange of land between Norman and English lords but we're not talking the Norman conquest here. Transferral of land was done relatively slowly. Norman lords were given every chance to swear allegiance to their new lord. As it happens, the Count of Armagnac sent his submission for his Norman lands to Henry, which was something of a coup. Although Henry was the Duke, and his brother John would become regent for the Duke after his death, and the revived post of Tenishal was English, the structure of much of the administration of Normandy remained largely the same, and many of the local officials were Norman. Every opportunity was taken to keep the Norman inhabitants of the towns, not set up a load of Calais throughout Normandy. And the indications are that this was working. 
basically, we're probably at a stage in history where, although there's no doubt the English were aware of being English and the French of being different and being proud of their respective tribes, the tradition of lordship and dynastic kingdoms was strong enough for the concept of Henry taking over as a Duke of Normandy to be perfectly palatable. There were major problems. Another principle of Henry's strategy was that Normandy needed to pay for itself to avoid a drain on English resources and all the problems that went with that. And of course, the defence of Normandy wasn't cheap at a time of trouble. So many hearth taxes were levied and many innovative taxes. Many Normans did leave the towns, initially at least, and it took a while to entice them back. Dispossessed lords like the Count of Ilmal, who could not accept Henry, launched raids from their lands outside Normandy and caused chaos. And meanwhile the dispossessed and unreconciled took to the woods and the bocage, the hilly, wooded country, and robbed and killed and lived off the land. Normandy would never quite fully pay for herself, but Henry's policy was by no means doomed to failure, and it was working, though it had a way to go. It was possible to win the hearts and minds of the local nobility, and Henry was on his way. After his death, his brother John, Duke of Bedford, was to continue his approach and was to be largely successful in winning the Normans round. In January 1420, Henry and Catherine's entrance into London was as magnificent as the celebrations after Agincourt. At Dover, the barons waded into the sea to welcome them. 30,000 people were apparently waiting at Blackheath to meet the king and his fairy tale wife as they travelled into London. The chroniclers went potty, describing the golden pair. Henry is tall and fair with good teeth, something that would have made my grandmother very happy. Catherine slim and fair, wearing blue and red, with red to show her worldly nature and blue her heavenly nature. It could well be that Henry by this stage looked much different to the traditional image we have of him with his pudding bowl haircut. The indications are that now he sported curly locks and a rather cool forked beard. And so on the 23rd of February, Catherine was crowned at Westminster with the obligatory massive slap-up feast afterwards. Such feasts were accompanied by what they called specialities. In this case, the big attraction was a massive pastry of St. George leading a tiger on a chain. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's a deal of debate about the Henry-Catherine marriage. They spent five months together out of 26. Henry didn't attend the coronation, but actually there's no evidence that Catherine and Henry enjoyed anything other than a happy marriage within its lights. He just wasn't a stay-at-home, pipe-and-slippers kind of bloke. There have been snidey comments that Catherine was as dumb as an ox and a bit dull, but again there's zip evidence, really. They had returned to a country well-governed by the keeper of the realm, Henry's brother John, Duke of Bedford. But now it was time for Henry and Catherine to show themselves to their people, and so they started a massive royal tour. St Albans, Kenilworth, Bristol, York, Coventry, Leicester, Shrewsbury. Before long, to those in the know, it did become clear that this was a fundraising tour as much as anything else. In the words of the chronicler, Henry explained with great elegance what great deeds he had performed through his prowess in France, and yet what remained to be done for the complete conquest of that kingdom. So as he went, 
Henry gathered forced loans and levies to feed the fire that was his army and ambition. He twisted arms, he flattered, ordered, cajoled, anything to bring in the cash. And then, at York in April, one of his servants told him that a messenger had arrived with important news. Meanwhile, back in France, his eldest brother Thomas, Duke of Clarence, was in control. Clarence fancied himself every bit as much of a dude as his big brother, and actually probably fancied he had a little bit more flair. So when the Dauphinists raided northeast of Paris, Clarence decided to teach them all a lesson, and before you could say Jack Robinson, he'd organised a raid deep into Men and Anjou. Ahead of him, the enemy was composed not just of French, but a major contingent of Scots, led by Buchan and Wigton. They'd arrived in 1419, bolstering the Franco-Scottish alliance. Both armies were probably similar sizes, around 6,000 strong, but the French commander Lafayette was apparently none too impressed with his Scots. Addicted as they were, to mutton and wine, apparently. Well, I can think of worse things to be addicted to. Clarence had been determined to capture the town of Angers, but when he arrived, he found the place too strong and retreated. One night, he was eating dinner when a knight arrived. Gilbert de Umfreville rocked up with a bunch of Scottish prisoners and the news that the Franco-Scottish army was only eight miles away. Clarence saw his chance for glory. He turned to his second-in-command, the Earl of Salisbury, told him to get his archers together as quickly as possible and charged off with all his mounted men-at-arms, all 1,500 of them. Wolf! This was his moment. He was going to catch the French and Scotch napping and show his big brother the meaning of the words style and flair. By the following day, his men-at-arms were strung out along the road when they came to a bridge beyond which lay the dangerously scattered Franco-Scottish force ripe for the plucking. But as Horatio Cockleys had found out, just a few brave men could defend a bridge for a long time and forcing a crossing took time. Eventually, Clarence forced his way across, but now the hunter become the hunted. The Franco-Scottish army was assembled and ready, and Clarence had no archers. In the ensuing melee, it was therefore numbers that counted, 6,000 to 1,500, and the result was utter rout for the English. Clarence was killed early, and pretty much everyone else in his army was either killed or captured. Behind him, Salisbury was now in the brown stuff. He had a lightly armed force of armours, outnumbered, and was isolated with a grumpy bunch of Scots in between him and home, which is never a good situation to be in. Salisbury, however, was a class act. He even had time to get Clarence's illegitimate son to recapture his father's body from the field before slipping away west and back to safety. Back in York, Henry reacted with grief and anger in equal measure. The Dauphin crowed that the English were not invincible and finally had the courage to lead an army himself to besiege Chartres. The Pope no doubt echoed Scottish thoughts when he pronounced that, verily, the Scots are a well-known as an antidote to the English. He was Italian, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Henry didn't panic at the Dauphinist attack. He had worked to finish off first in the form of his final parliament. Everything was done and dusted in a month. Beaufort's pockets were well and truly shaken out for his 14,000 quid. The Treaty of Troyes was approved without demur. Henry found time to assemble 400 Benedictine monks 
and discuss the reformation of their order. He reached agreement with the Scots that their King James would be returned to them soon and arranged the ransom of the Duke of Bourbon. As part of that, the warlike Duke had to accept the Treaty of Troyes, which was something of a propaganda coup for Henry. And then by June, Henry was back in France at the head of an army. So, maybe the aura of English invincibility had been destroyed at Bourget, maybe it hadn't. Salisbury had recovered his war after Bourget and launched a series of successful raids into Maine and Anjou. And meanwhile, he'd squished the attempt by the Dauphinists to do the same by the way of raids with him. And when Henry arrived, well, you should have seen the Dauphin run for cover, like a rabbit. Henry's army was very much smaller than in the Agincourt campaign, but as he came through Paris towards Chartres, the Dauphin legged it back over the Loire. Henry appeared to have plenty of aura left. Henry was in a hurry, and in a blizzard of energy, showed his normal control of both strategy and detail, and forced the pace on around him. Pestilence and dysentery stalked his small army, but Henry would not pause. Dreux and Bourgency surrendered. Rougemont was captured, accompanied by the brutal murder of 60 of the garrison, which theoretically was within the rules, but in practical terms a good deal more vicious of Henry than he needed to be. Nemours, Villeneuve fell, and then in September he came against Moore, northeast of Paris and a tougher nut to crack. The captain in Moore was one aptly named Bastard of Vaurus. What should we call him, to be polite? Mr. Vaurus, maybe. So, Mr. Vaurus was clearly a brave and resourceful man, but he also had form, as it were. Mr. Vaurus was a supporter of the Armagnac and a fierce partisan fighter. For years he'd terrorised the Ile de France and Brie, looting, killing, burning and hanging. His personal idiom, the signature of his brutality, was to hang his victims from the same tree. He was not going to give up to the enemy he hated. And so it proved a tough fight. And as autumn turned to winter, maybe Henry's troops expected him to retire to winter quarters. After all, no one fought in winter. But Henry fought in winter. And so, riddled with disease, exhausted and cold, Henry's army fought on. On December the 22nd, 1421, the bells rang out in Paris. News had arrived from England. A baby boy had been born, son of Catherine and Henry. He was named Henry, and is unique in English history, unique in being the only king of England who would also be crowned king of France, unique in English history as being utterly, utterly rubbish. But that's for the future. For now, this was simply further confirmation of God's favour. Through the winter into spring, Henry threw everything at the walls of Moor. Not just increasing numbers of massive cannon, but even floating towers. But it wasn't until May that Moore was finally forced to accept that it was beaten. According to the rules of war, they had to hand themselves over to Henry's mercy, which must have been scary. Which Henry would they meet? Would this be the merciful statesman-like Henry, or the brutal, angry, cold-blooded murderer Henry? As it happens, they met both. This time, Henry did not hunt the garrison down as he had at Rougemont. But Mr. Vaurus was not going to escape justice, and there was to be no mercy for him. There was also to be no sympathy for him from either French or English chroniclers. Mr. Vaurus had crossed the line too many times. 
Through the town he was dragged on a hurdle, his right hand cut off, beheaded, and then symbolically hung from a tree in the same way as he'd done to his victims. For celebration, Henry was able to spend a bit of time with his wife and tiny son, who came over to see him. But his time to relax was to be short. As news came of a Dauphinist attack on the Loire, Henry was on the march again. But this time there was a problem. It was looking a bit peaky. Unsurprisingly, his first reaction was just work through it. How bad could it be? But he got weaker, and he got weaker, and eventually it got so he couldn't ride his horse, and he had to be dragged along on a hurdle, because Henry had dysentery, and this was going to be one battle he couldn't win. But it has to be said that Henry was almost as impressive in death as he was in victory. He reacted the same way he reacted to every challenge, with determination to finish the job. Catherine was sent packing to Paris with little Henry, and the great men of the kingdom who could come were ordered to meet him at the royal palace of Vincennes on the Seine. Three of his right-hand men were able to join him, the Dukes of Bedford, Exeter and Warwick. Henry concentrated his dying days on doing his level best to make sure that his achievements would not be wasted. Maintain the alliance with Burgundy, he told them all. That's the key. Frankly, I don't think it took a rocket scientist to spot that, but hey. Brother John, Duke of Bedford, was to get the big job, regent to France, governor of Normandy and guardian of Henry VI. Brother Humph, Duke of Gloucester, was to be subordinate to Bedford, but was to be regent of England and was to look after Henry VI. It took a while for the final end to come, but it came on the 31st of August, 1422, when Henry, with his hands wrapped around a crucifix, muttered, In thy hands, O Lord, thou hast redeemed my end, and the royal clogs were well and truly popped. The Duke of Burgundy then arrived, and Bedford offered him the crown of France, which was a clever trick, but a clever trick the Philip the Good was too clever to accept. For Burgundy, the current situation was just fine, one step away from the responsibility for the Treaty of Troyes should things go wrong. From Vincennes, it took two months for Henry's body to get back to Westminster. Who knows how the Parisians really felt as they joined the outpourings of grief, but in London the grief was sincere and orchestrated in fine detail. Every householder was required to wear a black gown and hood and be present at the funeral. The craft guilds had to pay for candles, and at the door of every house along the procession, a servant had to hold a candle, until at last Henry was laid to rest in Westminster, according to his instructions, under the lines, Hammer of the Gauls, and Virtue Conquers All. Though maybe the more descriptive text on the tomb is, Flee Idleness. Whatever you think of Henry, I think we can agree he wasn't lazy. So that's the end of Henry V, a man with a claim to the title of greatest king of England. Impressive bloke, energetic, grasp of the big picture every bit as much as understanding and driving the detail. A conviction politician, you might say, but able to bring people with him, no one to push, no one to lay off. But a scary man as hard as nails, not a man to get on the wrong side of, step out of line and he'd have you. A man who lived broadly by the rules but seriously only just, with a broad and deep band of brutality, but close enough to the edge of the standards of the time for it to be acceptable to his contemporaries. Too hard, too efficient to love, but a man to stand back from and admire. As it happens, we're not quite at the high point of the English performance in the Hundred Years' War, but we are now terribly, terribly close. 
and we move from the boundary of one of the greatest kings of England to one of the worst. So, time for the weekly word again. This week, once again, I can welcome Kevin of the History of English back to our podcast with an appropriate word for the content of today's podcast. Thanks, David. This episode's word is obit, which was a common word in Middle English meaning death. You probably recognize it today as part of the word obituary, but obit was the earliest version of the word in English, and when it appeared in the late 1300s, it was used as a general word for death. It was one of many words which English has borrowed from Latin, and it came into English under the heavy influence of French following the Norman Conquest. The word is actually a combination of two Latin roots, ob meaning to, and era meaning go. So it literally meant to go. And that's a very common euphemism for dying. Even today we say that someone passed or passed away. In the Old English language of the Anglo-Saxons, it was common to use similar euphemisms. Old English words for death include forthgone, meaning to go forth, and forthfern, meaning to travel forth. The Anglo-Saxons also used the word utsith. A sith was a journey in Old English. It comes from the same root as the word send. So utsith was literally to outsend or journey out. So Latin obit uses the same basic construction, to go or to travel. And in the early 1700s, a registry of deaths became known as an obituary. And today we sometimes shorten that to just obit. But during the time of Henry V, an obit wasn't a shortened form of obituary. It was an actual death. So back to you, David. Thank you kindly, Kevin. And everyone out there, don't forget to go and see Kevin's podcast at thehistoryofenglishpodcast.com. Right, that's it, ish. Though, actually, my attempt to get a bit of pocket money from you lot. Thanks, Rob, for the donation of the coin and the bronze mount again. All you have to do is make a donation, all of you, through the website PayPal widget or indeed through Flatter, again, on the website. You can go to www.thehistoryofengland.com to see pictures of said prizes. Which just leaves it for me to say thank you to all of you for your kind comments on iTunes, Facebook and all the rest of it. And to thank Christine for her kind donation. Good luck everyone and have a great week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.